Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today, of course, as you all know, is the second day of August 2021. Now, I'm going to continue talking about amino acids here because we are not quite finished before we can um, get back into our frank discussion of aging, senescence, and then the immune response associated with morbidity and mortality. And I'm doing these amino acids, as you know, because I'm trying to do each of the major uh, subdisciplines in biochemistry. And then when I'm at that point where I feel like they've all been well saturated, I will then um, weave them together and bring the final conclusion to our discussion on the biochemistry of aging which uh, we are running to a close here. And I did promise it would be done by the end of summer. And as far as I can tell, I still have uh, all of August uh, and uh, the first three weeks of September. So I think we're right on track. Again, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry. Now, <clears throat> I want to make sure you understand a little bit more about the urea cycle. In order for the urea cycle to uh, kick in, there is an allosteric effector molecule called N-acetylglutamate. The biosynthesis of uh, N-acetylglutamate, or NAG, uh, comes from acetyl-CoA and glutamic acid. So if there are sufficient amounts of free acetyl-CoA and glutamate, this reaction will automatically proceed. Now, you would have high levels of acetyl-CoA, um, presumably for multiple reasons in the cell, but one of them could be because of the metabolism of amino acids running through the TCA cycle. Now, if that's indeed one of the, the major reasons why you build up acetyl-CoA, um, you also are going to need adequate amounts of glutamic acid in order to form N-acetylglutamate and thus allosterically induce CPS, which is um, carbamylophosphate synthase, right? And that's indeed the case. So high levels of glutamic acid and high levels of acetyl-CoA combined uh, will then feed forward that reaction um, for the synthesis of N-acetylglutamate and then therefore act as an allosteric effector molecule for CPS1, which will then drive the urea cycle and thus eliminate ammonia. Okay. So I want to make sure I brought that up. That's just classical biochemistry, but... Um, I don't believe I talked about it recently, and I wanted to make sure I did. So once you make carbamyl phosphate from the CPS reaction, you know that it combines with ornithine to make citrulline, and then citrulline reacts with aspartate to make arginosuccinate. Fumarate is then released. Arginine is made. We talked quite a bit about arginine last time. And then you hydrolyze off urea from arginine, you're back to ornithine. And that's basically the cycle in urea. Of course, there's two different compartments, and we talked about that last time. Now, let's put this all together for TCA cycle. So, in the TCA cycle, you know that it can function gluconeogenically if you start with oxaloacetic acid being shuttled out into the cytoplasm. Now, one of the carbon sources for gluconeogenesis would be the fumarate just synthesized in the urea cycle. You also are aware of the fact that because of transaminase reactions, that oxalacetic acid can also form aspartate. 
um, work, uh, reacting with the other two reactants would be glutamate and alpha-ketoglutarate. So this is where the aspartate comes from. Uh, so you get aspartate come from transamination. You get the oxalacetic acid uh, being utilized cytoplasmically to generate glucose via gluconeogenesis. The aspartate is shown to recycle to complete it and then fumarate sends the carbon back to run the TCA cycle uh, up to, of course, malate um, and that then therefore to oxalacetic acid. So that so those two pathways do function coordinatedly. Now I want to talk about the effect of L-ornithine hydrochloride ingestion on an intermittent maximal anaerobic cycle ergometer performance and fatigue recovery after exercise. So this is looking at amino acid intermediates and determining whether or not they have any role to play in exercise physiology, particularly in performance. Now, why are we talking about this in aging? Because one of the failures in aging is the lack of proper utilization of amino acids to run the TCA cycle. This occurs, of course, when glucose is being used for other purposes, such as for uh, glycogen synthesis if it's in the liver, and of course also if glucose 6-phosphate is being synthesized during gluconeogenesis, so it could be secreted from the liver uh, after the removal of the phosphate. So I want you to keep in mind that this anaplerotic nature of the TCA cycle, now understood in combination with the urea cycle, will allow for you to shuttle carbon around, eliminate ammonia, uh, but also potentially be utilized for bioenergetics. So ammonia can be produced by the deamination of AMP. With skeletal muscle contraction and oxidative deamination of amino acids, thus interfering with tissue oxidative metabolism, and that also may induce pyruvate accumulation. So what, what this overall does is it promotes anaerobiosis and a subsequent lactic acid accumulation because all the carbon then gets from pyruvate to lactate. So ammonia production and accumulation of skeletal muscle during intense exercise with a high contribution of anaerobic energy production will trigger ultimately a performance decrease. However, that kind of decrease in performance can be affected by the rapid metabolism of the ammonia produced in the skeletal muscle. So see, we're deeply into this now. Keep in mind the framework about the aging human and aging muscle. So again, back to this uh, healthy aspect of ammonia being produced in skeletal muscle gets metabolized via the urea cycle and this will, of course, occur ultimately in the hepatocyte after transportation to the liver, usually in the form of something like glutamate or glutamine, right? So if this response, if, if you look at this, the response uh, in terms of a rate constant and look at the urea cycle and the re urea cycle becomes accentuated, fatigue can actually be ameliorated by the reduction of ammonia accumulation in the skeletal muscle system. And the response time of the urea cycle will therefore have to be looked at. And it appears to be controlled by the promotion of carbamylophosphate synthase 1. Okay. 
uh, and, and with an increased concentration of glutamine and N-acetylglutamate, right, synthesized with ammonia accumulation. So you have the whole urea cycle now in full balance, and you have the allosteric effector. Now, it has been reported that the ingestion of intravenous infusion of L-ornithine leads to an increase in the blood ornithine concentration, and that may result in passive uptake of ornithine into mitochondria and therefore the accentuation of ammonia metabolism with an increase in the response speed uh, that is the rate of the urea cycle. So ornithine, of course, is a free amino acid and it plays a, it can play at least a central role in the urea cycle. And it's also important for the disposal of excess nitrogen such as ammonia and ammonium ions. Okay. So again, you remember the pathway, so I'm not going to have to describe it to you. Now, a previous study than the one I'm describing here also was looking at ornithine ingestion and the, its effect on ammonia metabolism and the effect of ammonia metabolism on accentuation during an incremental exhaustive bicycle ergometer exercise. And now uh, this particular study was using a uh, young population of male adults. So the blood ammonia level immediately following after 15 minutes after exhaustion was lower than those participants who ingested the L-ornithine than in those who ingested a placebo, uh, presumably not an amino acid. So that suggests that the metabolism of ammonia produced in skeletal muscle during intense exercise is increased by the ingestion of this intermediate urea cycle L-ornithine the non-protein amino acid. Moreover, although maintaining improving performance is expected by the inhibition of lactic acid accumulation with such anaerobic metabolism, few actually have actually, have actually looked at the effects of L-ornithine ingestion from that perspective of diminishment of lactic acid synthesis. So the contribution of energy via anaerobic metabolism will increase gradually in muscle after reaching the anaerobic threshold, and that occurs during incremental exhaustive exercise, and it will become greater finally at the point of total exhaustion. Fatigue can be caused by ammonia production, and accumulation, of course, occurs more greatly in an anaerobic metabolic um, system. And that would be, of course, compared to the aerobic. So although it has not been examined, the greater effect of ammonia metabolism would be expected by L-ornithine ingestion before sprinting exercises, and that could require greater anaerobic metabolism, if you've been following along with the understanding here. Remember, you're using carbon now from amino acids and not from fatty acids. So oxygen isn't necessary, right? Likewise, oxygen would be necessary for the complete oxidation of the carbon from glucose after running glycolysis, pyruvate dehydrogenase, pyruvate carboxylase, and the TCA cycle. You're gonna need oxygen to be able to be the ultimate electron acceptor after the electron transport chain gets rid of reoxidizing NADH and FADH2, right? So we're talking about the more anaerobic movement of the muscle tissue. So the way this whole system worked in this paper is subjects were um, given intermediate maximal anaerobic uh, cycle ergometer exercises 
after a blood draw. Subjects were instructed to pedal a cycle, um, setting a load based on the subject's body mass with a maximum effort of about 30 seconds by the tester's signal. Now, following this, they had a full 60-minute rest after ornithine hydrochloride or the placebo was given them and then they ingested it. So after that, the ergometer exercise was performed again with a minute rest between sets. They rested for 15 minutes following a blood draw then, immediately after the intermediate exercise, and then maximal ergometer exercise was conducted after that blood draw. So you get the idea. The whole experiment's going to be taking about a total of 90 minutes. So you add the ornithine um, hydrochloride basically before you start the whole thing off, either that ornithine or the placebo. Um, you then uh, do a maximal anaerobic performance test right at the beginning there, right, a little bit past so-called time zero. And then you measure the ammonia, the lactic acid, the ornithine and glutamic acid concentrations at about 70 minutes into the run. And this is somewhere within that intermediate anaerobic bicycle exercise moment. So what did they find? The main result of that study was that there was a peak pedaling revolution during maximum anaerobic exercise and a subsequent maximal intermediate anaerobic exercise after the L-ornithine hydrochloride. And that one was actually significantly greater than what they saw in the placebo. So there was a decrease in performance after maximal intermediate exercise, and that was compensated by the L-ornithine hydrochloride ingestion. So it seems to be able to have pushed this theory forward a bit. So take a look at another paper published in Journal of Physiology, and we're going to put this in the show notes. It says that during prolonged exercise, the cerebral uptake and accumulation of ammonia will also provoke fatigue, and it does so in the brain by affecting neurotransmitter metabolism. Okay, so this is going to be different than what we saw in the skeletal muscle and the interaction with the liver. Now, this allows me to talk a little bit about ammonia toxicity. <clears throat> Anhydrous ammonia, either a liquid or a gas, will react with water to form a strongly alkaline solution, of course, uh, ammonium hydrochloride. So that's ammonia plus water makes ammonium hydroxide, okay? Ammonium hydroxide. Now, that reaction is exothermic and is capable of causing significant thermal energy, actually, uh, injury, actually. Tissue damage from the alkali is caused by the liquefaction necrosis, and it will actually penetrate deeper than that caused by an equipotent acid. So ammonium uh, hydroxide will generate this liquefaction necrosis phenomena because of the tissue damage, okay? So <clears throat> the tissue breakdown liberates water and that perpetuates the conversion of ammonia to ammonium hydroxide, you understand. So in the respiratory tract, that would result in the destruction of cilia and mucosal barrier, ultimately to infection. Furthermore, secretions, sloughed epithelium, cellular debris, edema, and reactive smooth muscle contraction 
will cause significant airway obstruction. Hepatic encephalopathy is caused by the effects on the brain of any substances that under normal circumstances are efficiently metabolized usually by the liver. And ammonia would be the most important factor in the pathogenesis of this hepatic encephalopathy. Okay, ammonia is going to be the major source of that. And you can pick up the ammonia from multiple sources. You can pick it up again from uh, transamination reactions. Uh, and this can be occurring uh, at uh, right neural, neuronal uh, termini. You can also get ammonia from the urea cycle, of course, and you can also get it after flushing through the kidney. Uh, the intestine will also generate some ammonia from the colonic flora. Uh, so there's a whole lot of different possible uh, routes for ammonia increases in the central nervous system. So remember that you have transamination reactions. You have oxidative deamination, which will make ammonia. Um, and that will allow you to make aspartate. And, you know, the aspartate will be using the urea cycle. And you also have acetyl-CoA making an acetyl-glutamic acid, and that's going to drive then uh, the uh, CPS reaction in um, the urea cycle. Now, there are detoxification reactions that are basically alternatives to the urea cycle. For example, benzoic acid in the presence of coenzyme A and ATP, and here we're going to hydrolyze ATP to A and B and PBI, is going to make a benzoyl uh, acetyl-CoA. So when you add glycine to that compound and remove CoA, you make benzoyl glycine, which is also known as hippuratic acid. Now that's occurring, okay, as a possible utilization. Now here's another one. Phenyl acetate and glutamine in the presence of coenzyme A and hydrolysis of ATP to AMP, PPI, will make phenylacetylglutamine. So now you have benzoylglycine and phenylacetylglutamine. Those are two detox reactions that are alternatives to the urea cycle. On the intestine, remember that you can have ammonia, bicarbonate, ATP to make carbamyl phosphate, glutamate converted to ornithine, and then carbamyl phosphate and ornithine then ultimately will make citrulline. It will leave the intestine and go to the kidney, and you know, citrulline converted to arginosuccinate and ultimately to arginine, right? Now that's happening, if I didn't mention before, the kidney. Another reaction to keep in mind is the synthesis of glutamate semialdehyde. Now, this is a reaction that's converting glutamate with the help of ATP hydrolysis and NADH oxidation to that semialdehyde form. Ultimately, the ornithine that's generated in the TCA cycle will react with an amino transferase. And in this reaction, any alpha ketoacyl will be converted to an alpha amino acid, and you'll make this glutamate semialdehyde. That spontaneously will cyclize to delta-1 pyrroline 5-carboxylic acid. And the delta-1 pyrroline 5-carboxylic acid will then be 
um, reduced to proline. And that reaction is known as pyrrolene 5-carboxylate reductase. And it actually uses NADPH, not NADH. So that's the synthesis. And you can also synthesize ornithine by reversing that pathway from proline. So proline through the 5-carboxylate to the glutamate semialdehyde to ornithine going in that direction. And then ornithine down to proline, like I just mentioned. Either way. Hmm. Other reactions to consider in amino acid metabolism, because they're all going on simultaneously, particularly in the liver and the muscle, uh, take 3-phosphoglycerate and react with phosphoglycerate dehydrogenase, which, of course, is going to reduce NAD, and you'll make 3-phosphopyruvate. Then an amino transferase or transaminase will take glutamate alpha KG. You'll make 3-phosphoserine, get rid of the phosphate via hydrolysis using water, and you make serine. That's one way to make serine from 3-PGA. Serine, of course, with that will react with tetrahydrofolate and uh, in a freely reversible reaction, actually. And it will make the N5-N10-methylene tetrahydrofolate and also glycine. So serine plus tetrahydrofolate will make glycine and N5-N10-methylene tetrahydrofolate, or you can go in the reverse reaction and you can actually you can synthesize serine and tetrahydrofolate from glycine and from the methylene folate intermediate. So that is also a really important series of reactions, um, ultimately controlling this entire uh, scenario of intermediary amino acid metabolic pathways. Now, there's also a serial transfer RNA that requires that phosphoserial intermediate, and that allows you to make the appropriate modified transfer RNA for polypeptide biosynthesis in either cytoplasmic or an endoplasmic reticulum-based ribosomes. So a lot of amino acid metabolism is going to be functioning through intermediary metabolism, but also through um, primary metabolism dealing here where we're talking about the synthesis of polypeptides. And we can also point out that glycine is the product of the reaction known as serine hydroxymethyltransferase. So this will further aid in transfer RNA maturation to be able to synthesize proteins by having all the correct loading of the amino acids to the isoaccepting arm of those tRNAs. We also know there's a reaction known as the glycine cleavage enzyme that will take tetrahydrofolate. It will reduce NAD, and in the process, will make carbon dioxide and ammonia. So from glycine, going through those reactions, you will make CO2, ammonia, NADH, and N5N10-methylene tetrahydrofolate. Now, that is a PLP-dependent reaction, a glycine cleavage reaction. We've already mentioned it, but I just want to make sure you know that serine can be converted to 3-phosphoglycerate in the other direction. So serine to 3-hydroxypyruvate uh, to deglycerate, and then uh, using glycerate kinase, making 3-PGA from serine. Okay. So that's an important uh, reaction, actually, in uh, gluconeogenesis. Serine, then, with the PLP enzyme, as I said, will also be used to make pyruvate. And that's the serine dehydratase reaction, once again requiring 
uh, pyridoxal phosphate. You have two different kinds of hydroxyproline. You have three hydroxyproline and you have four hydroxyproline. And those are going to be very important intermediary metabolism. When you have four hydroxyproline, it can be picked up by the mitochondria and converted to 4-hydroxy-2-glutarate. Okay. And with an enzyme called 4-hydroxy-2-ketoglutarate lyase, or HKGA, um, that reaction will then synthesize glyoxylate, and glyoxylate will react with alanine to form either glycolate, glycine, and py or pyruvate. So these series of reactions are all coupled together, right? Um, the glyoxylate also will be converted either to glycolate and leave the cell and be uh, excreted or glyoxylate uh, via the reaction of LDH, which of course is like to dehydrogenase, which will use glyoxylate as a substrate, will make oxalic acid and that also could be secreted. The glyoxylate itself, if it does not get converted to glycolate or oxalate, can be set to the peroxisome, and glyoxylate can be converted either to glycine by converting alanine to pyruvate, that's a transaminase reaction, or the glyoxylate can be converted directly to oxalate and back to glycolate. So that's the peroxisomal reaction. Um, and that, of course, utilizes the enzyme known as glycolate oxidase. So proline concentrations, it turns out, is actually related to the balance of the enzymatic activities of the proline dehydrogenase, which is also known as proline oxidase, or POX, and the delta-1 pyroline 5-carboxylate, or p uh, p 5C reductase. Now, as a result of that, the P5C, the pyroline 5-carboxylate, will play a pivotal role in maintaining the concentration of proline in the body fluid. And in any inborn errors of PFC, of synthesizing that carboxylate, leads to disturbance of proline metabolism. This has been well known because several inborn errors of proline metabolism have been described. Hyper Prolinemia type 1 or HP1 is a result of a deficiency in that proline oxidase enzyme. So the proline oxidase gene, which is actually known as PRODH, is located on chromosome 22. It's actually 22Q11.2. And that particular region is deleted in a velocardiofacial syndrome, which is a congenital malformation syndrome and very um, horrible disease. In addition, that gene, locus, is related to the susceptibility to schizophrenia. The other type of hyperprolinemia is HP2, so that's hyperprolinemia type 2, right? It's caused by a deficiency of the proline 5-carboxylate dehydrogenase activity. So hypoprolinemia, on the other hand, has been found, described as a deficiency of the uh, proline 5-carboxylate synthetase. Now, that enzyme defect leads to hyperammonemia associated with hypoornithemia, 
hypocitrullinemia and hypoarginemia. You can see these are all intermediates in the urea cycle. And uh, those are all other than hypoprolinemia. Okay. So hyperhydroxyprolinemia is an autosomal recessive inherited disorder. It's caused by the deficiency of hydroxyproline oxidase again, the pox enzyme. There are no symptoms in that, and it's believed to be a benign metabolic disorder. So at least one of them doesn't show up as an inborn error of metabolism, at least not one that causes any uh, particular defect in the person who's suffering from it. Now, the deficiency of the ornithine aminotransferase will cause, of course, a transient hyperammonemia during early infancy. And that's due actually to the deficiency of ornithine being generated in the urea cycle because right, the infant has a very sluggish urea cycle. Later life, of course, something called gyrate atrophy of the retina occurs, and that is due to the hyperornithemia, which is, as you might realize, is sort of a pseudo-paradoxical phenomena there. And one more thing I want to say is proliodase deficiency is a rare, very rare autosomal recessive hereditary disease, Prolildase catalyzes the hydrolysis of dipeptide or oligopeptide with a C-terminal pro proline or C-terminal hydroxyproline. And the, the deficiency of prolidase will cause actually severe mental retardation and severe skin ulcers. So many of these amino acid disorders um, will compromise the system tremendously. We can talk a little bit about 3 and &E metabolism before we finish today. 3 and &E can be converted by serine 3 and &E dehydratase to alpha-ketobutyrate. Of course, via alpha-ketoacid dehydrogenase, which will reduce NAD and utilize carb, uh, 